Let's get into the Word today. I'm excited about what God has to say. The title of today's message is Only Servants Need Apply. The subtitle is How a Church Can Look Like Jesus. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 20. There's a jumping off point today, verse 20 through 29. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectively to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right, one on your left. Only a mother would do that, right? <laughs> but Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. The, the boys were in on it. It wasn't just mom. <laughs> let's go, mom. Let's go talk to Jesus about being on your right hand and on your left hand uh, in the new kingdom that was to come. Jesus had just, if you go to previous verses, he's talking about, he's talking about how they're going to be persecuted and suffer. So, so they're, the, these guys, are, they're buying in, man. They're ready. They're ready to go. They're ready to pay the price. But uh, if they figure, if we're going to do all that suffering, we might as well be at the top positions when the new kingdom comes about. And, uh, uh, oh, yes, they replied, we're able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit at my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over them, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the first thing that stands out to me is Jesus didn't approach his mission of restoring humankind, establishing his kingdom, and changing the world the way I would have done it at all. I would have tried to build a relationship with the powerful people. I would have, after after practicing my wine-to-water routine and healing the lame and walking on the water in front of the common folks, I would have set up um, a demonstration in front of Herod or Caesar or some more important people, right? Uh, I would have uh, tried to tried to do my show in front of uh, King Agrippa and the big guy Caesar, you know? Perhaps I would have set up an intellectual think tank in the neighborhood near the palace in Rome, you know, like the Heritage Foundation or something like that. Or, or I would have tried to get published in one of those influential journals of the day. I, I would have done, you know, after, after walking on the, on the, across the lake and turning water into wine and a few things like that, you could probably, you could probably get on Oprah. <laughs> you, you could probably, you could probably uh, uh, get on, um, I don't even watch late night talk shows. I don't know who's doing it anymore. Conan, is Conan O'Brien still? No, he's done. I don't know. I, I would try to get on the t 
talk show circuit. Um, Jesus didn't do any of this stuff. Instead, he focused, he gathered people from all different walks of life. He gathered people, blue collar, white collar. He had a doctor on his team. He had a, he had a tax collector. He had, of course, four fishermen were first, his first two recruits. And, and, and here's what he did. Instead of focusing on uh, being a power broker in the culture, because and, and, I would have thought, well, you're going to change the world. You've got to change it from the top. You, you gotta you gotta get get around where the levers of power over. You gotta you gotta move to Washington D.C. if you want to change the world, you know, or, or you gotta go to Los Angeles or New York City, or you you gotta do that. No, Jesus didn't 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 do that at all. He he instead he called people to himself. He called people to himself and taught them to be like him. That was his way of changing the world. That was his way of redeeming mankind. He, he called them together and he taught them how to treat one another. Isn't that interesting? I, I don't know if that interests you the way it does to me. It intrigues you the way it does to me. That, it just intrigues me that instead of doing the things that a person would normally do to, to change the world, he was content to gather a, a 12 and then 120 people and teach them how to treat each other. In fact, he has a, you can read a whole chapter. In fact, really, John 13 through 17, but especially in chapter 17, he drills down on telling his disciples how they should treat each other and how they should love each other. Uh, now, um, n- note in verse 25 and 26 what Jesus says in chapter 20. When the other ten of the disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. He was concerned about what happened among them. And it kind of reiterates what we read in John chapter 13, where it says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, we all know that this love extended to the community to nearby, of course, because later in a statement we call the Great Commission, Jesus instructed his followers to go out into the world, recruiting other people to join them and be taught also how to get along with each other and how to love each other and how to serve each other. And I just want to show you the following diagram that will show you how Christ wants us to become the living embodiment of Christ himself rather than power brokers. That's not to say that some of you won't be called, by the way. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But that's not to say that some of you will not be called to political life. That's not to say that some of you, you won't be called uh, to, to be um, senators and serve on uh, boards and committees and, and all those sort of things. And, and uh, I, I believe the church uh, should have. I believe, you know, when I grew up in church, we would always give altar calls for people to call to the ministry and call to the mission field. I, I really believe we should, have all, we should also be giving altar calls for people who are called to be attorneys and people who are called to be doctors and people who are called to be politicians and people who are called to the STEM fields and all these other things. We should, be, we should, we should broaden our calling. So I believe in that, by the way. But I'm, I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God's primary mission. Jesus said, I will build my church. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus said, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He did not say, I will build a nation, I will build a corporate structure, I will build an athletic uh, organization, or anything else. He said, I will build my church. And this is how we view, at Bethany Community Church, this is how we view what God is doing in your lives. Uh, First of all, we believe uh, believe in a a dual vision of what God has for your life. First of all, he has a personal walk with Christ that he wants to develop, a personal walk with Jesus that he wants to enlarge and develop and cause you to be intimate with Jesus Christ in a very personal way. The second program, building program, we believe that God is building in your life is he is integrating you into the body of Christ. He is, he, is, he, is, he is bringing you together with other believers and making you as one. He, said, he prayed that we would be as one, even as he is one. He was talking about you and me. He prayed that we would be as one in his body, and he's building his church. So it, the, the, the progression of what we're trying to do in the mission we're on goes like this. It starts with the community. That's what Compassion New England's about. We, are, we want to be in the community. We, we always say around here we want to be bigger on Monday than we are on Sunday. We want to be in the community, what we call common space, a place where, where the, the unbeliever will go and the believer will go and hopefully meet each other there. And the second group is the crowd. Now, the crowd, that's the people that actually show up for church. And, you know, we appreciate the crowd. Don't ever disrespect the crowd. Jesus showed great respect for the crowds. The people who came to hear him teach and the people who came to receive his miracles and the people who followed him from place to place, Jesus showed great, great deference and compassion for uh, for the crowd. In, in fact, in uh, uh, one place he says that Jesus looked upon the crowd and he had great compassion on them as, as sheep without a shepherd. And another time when, uh, when, the, when the crowd had listened to him teach for uh, nearly three days and they were hungry, he said, we can't let the crowd go home hungry. We have to feed them. And that's the, the miracle of the fish and bread that happened there. So Jesus had great respect for the crowd. Jesus never said... You people that just come and hear me to preach, I, don't, I, I, just, want, I just want deeply committed followers. Uh, I, I don't want to mess with you people that are just kind of spectating and, and you're still a fan but not a player yet. Well, we, have, we appreciate you too that are here today, some of you here today, and you're part of the crowd. You're part of someone who comes and you're not, you're not involved, but you come and we're, we're glad to have you today. I want you to know that. But... We believe that God wants to move you into the next circle, which is congregation. The congregation is those who are committed to love and serve and know one another. The, the congregation are those of you who are committed to, 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 to know and be known. That's what, it, that's what you are. When you come into the congregation and you really join the church, and that's something, a spiritual thing, and we have a formal process we'll talk about much, much later, but, but, but before it's a formal process, that's a spiritual process. It's a spiritual move in your heart that you join yourself to a group of people and you say, These are, this is the church family where God has planted me and I'm a part of that congregation. I, th- those are my disciples. Those are my homies, these people here, right? And then, of course, of course there's leadership and that's another, that's another conversation. When people become a part of the congregation, God will call some of you to the next level, which is the core group of leaders. Um, now, 
So Matthew 20, 25, 28 illustrates what these communities of Jesus that he is building are supposed to look like. So I'm calling this subtitle today is A Church That Looks Like Jesus. The Son of Man came not to be served, he said. This was the last thing he said in that, in that conversation to his disciples. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus heals two blind men. So, I, let me give you three, three things that a church that looks like Jesus does. Can we kind of do that today? Give you three things that a church that looks like Jesus does. Number one, a church that looks like Jesus, when the members, or, or when the members, a church looks like Jesus, let me say it correctly, a church looks like Jesus when the members become deeply concerned about one another. The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And our text that we read, and I'm going to keep going back to this text because I want you to really get it today. But among you, among you, I put that in big, big letters, among you, who is your among you group? Who are the people that you're among? Among you, it will be different than the world and the society. And then there's 1 Peter 1.22 that says, Now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth, love one another as if your life depended on it. Your new life is not like your old life. Isn't that interesting? That the new life that Christ brings you into is a life of loving other people. Specifically, and first of all, other members of the church. Now, the church is not supposed to be a place you attend. But a specific group of people you have extraordinary love and concern for. The the one another referred to in scripture over and over and certainly includes certainly includes your nuclear family and your extended family, but just as much includes your church family. It just as much includes your church family. And and and, and sometimes we miss that truth. That, that yes, God wants us to be conne- connected to our nuclear family, our extended family, but the scripture makes it very clear that the people at the church are your family as well. That, th- that they, de- they deserve, now, now some of you don't love your family, so let's start there, and you need to start loving your family, okay? Uh, some of you don't like your, your family very much, so let's, you start there and start liking your family and loving your family, but a lot of folks... A lot of folks have de- are deeply committed to their family, deeply committed to their nuclear family, uh, maybe even the extended family, but certainly the nuclear family. But then they treat the church family totally different, a totally different set of standards, a totally different set of rules. They will stick with their, their, their biological family, even though they get offended and all kinds of things happen, and all kinds of crap goes down in the, in the nuclear family and in the extended family, but they're going to keep going to family reunion. They're going to keep d- doing family. This is my family. But then the church, they're hypersensitive. If some little thing happens that offends them, well, I'm out of here. Well, you should not have any less commitment to your church family than, you do, than you're supposed to have to your nuclear family and your extended family. That. I don't have time to get in. We're going to get into this in another series, but this is so biblical. And I, I, I really ran into this first in a book called Reading 
misreading the scripture through Western eyes. And one of the, one of the ch- chapters in that book is about how we, through the Western way of looking at family, we don't look at family properly. And we don't look at family the way bi- biblical culture did. Uh, you know, so we'll, we'll get into that much, much later. But, uh, um, it, 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 you know, uh, it breaks my heart to realize that a person can come to this church and remain unknown. It really does. Um, and and, and I, sometimes that's my fault. I take responsibility for that sometimes. I, I don't do as good a job as I should do. But, but how many of you today, this is a message about action. This is not just a message about learning. How many of you today will commit to become noticers? Three words. I'm going to give you three words. Noticers, knowers, and inviters. How many of you will commit to that? How many of you will commit to becoming? Some of you will commit. That's great. What did I get? That's 30%. It's not bad. <laughs> and anybody, anybody who can sell that well is going to be very wealthy. There's something really painful about being invisible. Jesus was such a noticer that he noticed a paralyzed man who had laid on the porch at Bethsaida for a long time. Uh, he noticed a vertically challenged tax collector who had gone out on a limb to see Jesus and was up in a tree, and he noticed him and called him down. He, he noticed that a woman with a bleeding disease had touched him and touched the hem of his garment, not even his body, but the hem of his garment. He noticed that. He was a noticer. Even in our text, when the, when the ten were grumbling, I, I, this stood out to me as I, I read this this week. It, when the ten were begin to grumble because uh, John, James and John had asked for an elevated position in the kingdom to come over them, Jesus noticed that. He noticed they were unhappy. The, I, I can just imagine, because I know how, how crowd dynamics work, uh, when, when people hear something they don't like, you immediately clump together with the people who might agree with you. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said up there? Do you believe that? That's what was happening. Did, did you hear what they said? And Jesus was such a noticer that he noticed. And, and he was such a peacemaker. You know? I, I love the, the way Jesus, he's just so classy. This whole, this whole conversation, Jesus is such a class act. First of all, he doesn't go, what do you mean you want to be, you want to be at my right hand and my left? You terrible, awful, prideful, arrogant person. <laughs> no, he just said, uh, well, you know, that's, that's great that you want to be my right hand and my left, but... Uh, First of all, it's going to be a bunch of suffering involved. You sure you want that? And secondly, I really can't give it to you. I really can't give you that. He was just such a class act. You know, he was just so kind to his disciples. And so he, but, but he noticed. That's what I wanted, I wanted to point out to you. He, he noticed that they were grumbling. And he, he calls, hey, come on, come on, guys, we need to have a holy huddle right now. He doesn't let them walk away and start some insurrection and start some divisive thing and, and start infighting with one another. He calls them all into a holy huddle 
And he says, guys, guys, you, 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 you're missing understanding. You don't understand what the kingdom is at all. He noticed, he cared, he loved, he spoke affirmation and wisdom. And he, he kept the men he loved from fighting with another. And he took advantage of a teachable moment. Boy, I, love, I want to be like Jesus. How many of you want to be like Jesus? I just, oh, I'm not that good at it yet. So pray for me. <laughs> Please let God call you to be among to be an among you person. Please don't be cold and indifferent to those among you. Let's be a church that looks like Jesus. I'm telling you guys, it's really, it's, sometimes it's lonely in here, but it's really lonely out there. I, you know, um, as I've mentioned before, I, I serve as a volunteer chaplain for the Menden Fire Department. And every once in a while, an EMT will call me and he'll say, we've got a cardiac arrest, can you come? This summer, this summer I've had two homes where I got to call cardiac arrest. When I got there, one, it was a 20-year-old who had overdosed and was, was lying dead in the kitchen floor. And this past weekend, it was a 29-year-old. And same thing. I'm talking about Menden. I'm not talking about inner city somewhere. I'm talking about Menden, little town of Menden. We have an epidemic. Bad, some really bad stuff's coming across the southern border, and it's killing people. But that's not the part I'm, I, I, I'm most concerned about. What I'm most concerned about is I go into these people's homes, and there's nobody there. The neighbors aren't over. Friends aren't there. I was in a home last Saturday morning. They were so grateful to see me. They were so appreciative that I was there. That they even said, is there anybody our teenagers can talk to? Because there's three other teenagers in the home who saw this happen. I'm telling you, the world, the, I don't know if you've been reading any of the studies about loneliness, but it's an epidemic. Loneliness has become an epidemic. And... Uh, um, uh, Stephen Marque, I don't know how you pronounce it, M-R-C-H-E, I've never heard it pronounced, I've only read his name. He wrote a brilliant essay uh, in 2012 entitled, uh, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? Thankfully, he didn't simply say, yes, Facebook is the problem, Facebook's making us lonely. No, there's a deeper issue that we can solve and still use Facebook. He concludes, here's what he said, Loneliness is one of the first things Americans spend their money achieving. We are lonely because we want to be lonely. We have made ourselves lonely. We want to be lonely. Wow. I don't know. Do you think he's right? Good. Prove it. We must become countercultural. I'm constantly amazed at how strategic we are at keeping our Christian brothers and sisters out of our business. I said I'm constantly amazed at how strategic we are at keeping our Christian brothers and sisters out of our business. This should be the place that you want to share your life. 
This should be the place. This is the place that if my, if, if, if when I had a teenager at home and they were playing around with drugs, you're the people I want to tell. You're the people I trust with that information. You're the people that I want to lay hands on Sherry and I and weep over us. You're the people that I want to correct us if you can see that we're the reason. And we say, I don't want that. Well, okay, what can I say? You're missing one of the great benefits of the body of Christ. Every spiritual gift is in this place. I want every spiritual gift. I know Hillary said it takes a village to raise a kid. She's, uh, she's on the right track. She's on the right track. I, I, I don't think the village out there can raise my kids. <laughs> I think you, can, you and I can. You, you, I think a church can raise kids. I really do. So I don't want anybody in my village. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll talk. I, I know there's balance to everything. And, and, and we, should not force you to, we should not force you to tell your business that you don't want to tell. But for goodness sake, find somebody in this room that will pray with you and weep over you and speak truth into your life. Okay, um, number two. A church looks like Jesus when it defines greatness different than the society does. Um, you know, Forrester Research Group surveyed 222 companies and government agencies, and none of them got an excellent customer service rating. I don't know if you've noticed, but customer service is not great in America right now. Maybe it's just my experience, I don't know. The one place that has, understands customer service is Chick-fil-A. And I'm not saying that because they play praise music. Oh, 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 I can take that early. I like praise music, but they don't need to play praise music for me to want to go there. I don't even like the food that much. It's okay. The service. I, I, I go there just to see something run well. I mean, it's incredible. Did, did you guys go there dur- during the lockdown when all the in-room in in dining? There'd be a line of cars from here to Route 140, and you, you're in the, through there and got your food in 15 minutes. And what do they always say when you say thank you? What do they say? It's my pleasure. It's a, it's a culture of servanthood. And it, it's no accident that Truett Cathy, the founder, was a, was a Christian. And it's no accident that, that the sons and grandson, the, Mark Cathy is the grandson and uh, my brother was telling me a while back that he came by, they're in Atlanta where my brother's ministry is, and Mark Cathy came by to visit the place where they serve the homeless. And he did a little, a little tour, you know, of the place. And there was a, he said they were walking along through the hallway and there was some garbage over here. And Mark Cathy, the grandson of Truett Cathy, probably worth a few million himself, goes over and picks up the trash and puts it in the garbage can. The director at Safe House said, ooh, I felt so busted. <laughs> and, uh, and then he wrote him a $40,000 check before he walked out the door. You know, I don't know if you learn about serving anywhere but the Scripture. 
I'm not sure you learned that anywhere else. Jesus said, you know the rulers of this world lord it over the people and officials flaunt their authority over them, but among you it will be different. In Sherry, I I talked to Sherry about this sermon, and I was kind of stuck this middle of the week. I was just kind of stuck. I just, uh, I, there's so many scriptures on serving, and so many ways to go. What should I do? And she actually mentioned, "You go, should you do that text?" And I always do what she tells me to do. And uh, <clears throat> here's what Sherry said. This I, this is a Sherry quote. In the world, it's get great, have servants. In the church. It's be servants get great. Isn't that good? That's good. The idea that to be great is to be served, honored, and made comfortable is a crippling disease. One that even after this admonition would cause the disciples to allow no response to tired, dirty feet and that violation of hospitality when they didn't wash each other's feet in the Middle Eastern culture. That was, that was a no-no. And Jesus, the creator of the world and soon-to-be sin-bearer of the world, took up the towel in the basin and started washing their feet. Honor, position, and assignment may come. But for the servant, it's coincidental. It may come. There's nothing wrong with position. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with you know, uh, uh, the church is well served if someone can, can preach well or, or someone can sing well or someone can play an instrument well or, they, or, 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 or someone can, can administrate well. The church is well served by people in positions, but, but, but Jesus said, don't, don't think about it. Just, just see needs and meet them. See needs and meet them, and let that take you wherever it takes you. See needs and meet them. That's what he's saying. Brother, Brother Lawrence was an ex-soldier in the Middle Ages who joined himself to a monastic order. You may have heard of him. He was put in charge of the kitchen, and for reasons of his own, he resolved to practice the presence of God in the kitchen. And, and he, 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 in the, there are scrubs scrubbing pots and pans and shelling peas and mopping floors. He worked as though God were there. That was his, that was his goal. And he, he wrote it down in a set of letters to some friends and some colleagues. And that later became a book. It became a devotional classic. The, the, the Practicing the Presence of God by, by Brother Lawrence. People have read it all over the world. But let me tell you something. Brother Lawrence was not trying to write a devotional classic. He was trying to serve in the presence of God. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she devoted herself to the destitute and dying of India. She walked and talked later with popes and presidents and uh, the leading journalists sought her out. But Mother Teresa wasn't trying to be world famous. She was trying to serve the poor of Calcutta. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the famous Christian leaders and founders of the Methodist Church. She had 11 children, and, and, and she raised them uh, to serve the Lord. And, and she had this, uh, uh, I've read that she, she was so devoted to uh, making sure she had prayer time, but with 11 children, and, and, uh, and, and I'm sure the husband was off somewhere else. I'm sure he wasn't helping, and especially in those days. But so in order to have her devotional time, she would take her apron and she would sit in the middle of the room and put the apron over her head. That's the only way she could have time with the Lord with 11 children running all over the house. Well, she wasn't trying 
to raise the founders of the Methodist church. She was trying to serve the Lord, raising 11 children to be Christians. See? You got to get your eyes off of the big thing and do the simple thing. Do what's in your path. Do what's in your path. That's what, we, that's what volunteer sign-up's going to be. We, 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 we need workers in the children's department if we're going to serve as God wants us to serve. If we're going to do what God wants us to do. Families are depending on it. We need workers in the nursery. Other places you're going to see when you go out there. And please go out there. Even if you don't think you want to sign up, just go out there and kind of see what's going on and where the needs are and so you make sure you pray about it. Finally, I want to say this today. A church looks like Jesus when it treats the ordinary as sacred. I said a church looks like Jesus when it treats the ordinary as sacred. When Sherry and I took the little church down in Menden, which is now which is Beth, Beth, it was Bethany Assembly of God in those days, now it's Bethany Community Church. It was um, a, a, some of you know the building. It's a little white building. Uh, uh, downtown Milford, not too far from Memorial uh, Elementary School in Milford. And um, there were uh, seven people. And uh, the first thing, you know the first thing we did is, the first thing we did was not to um, have a big rally or something. Or the first thing we did was to scrub the walls and floors. That's the first thing we did because it smelled bad. And I'll never forget, Harold Heidel was a denominational official at the time. And Harold came over, and they, they had actually voted to shut the church down. The, the, the denomination had voted the church church down, and it was not worth saving. And uh, these seven people that were there, or four adults that were there, said, please give us a chance and let us try to find a pastor. And they, they, had to find, they scraped the bottom of the barrel, and they got me. And uh, that was in 19, uh, 1988. That was 1988. So I'll never forget when Harold Heidel came over, the uh, de denominational official. The first thing he said, he did like that. Wow, it smells so much better. <laughs> it was a stench in the nostrils of God, believe me, before. The... We've, we, we miss the practical in the scripture. Go back to Exodus chapter, chapter 31. God wants a, a, a tabernacle where his glory can fill the tabernacle. But he didn't start with glory. He didn't start with a glory seminar. Let's have a glory seminar on how to have glory. You know, let's, let's learn how to pray the glory down. You know, that, that's where modern Christians want to start. They want to start with glory. Pray the glory down. Let's have a move of the Holy Spirit. Yes, amen. <laughs> no, look. Exodus 31. I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uriah, the grandson of her of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability in, in giving sermons. No, expertise in all kinds of crafts. The ordinary. He's a craftsman. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. The ordinary was treated as sacred. And because they treated the ordinary sacred, when they got the thing built, the glory of God did show up. Amen? 
I love 1 Corinthians 15, 46. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. John C. Purdy said, Our conventional thinking is backward. We suppose that persons once decided to be great and influential rather than remain mired in the ordinary. It's just the opposite. They found in the ordinary workplace an occasion of doing what would have described what, what would have described as their duty or their calling. The Bible says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around to his waist. Now, oh, did that just, did you just see that? Look at that verse. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He knew, Jesus knew, that he was about to take dominion over the planet. He's about to take dominion over all spiritual powers. He's about, he's about, to, he's about to accomplish what he came to earth for. And he got up from the mill, took up his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And then he poured water into basin and began to wash disciples' feet. He considered the ordinary task of washing feet as sacred and as important as rising to the heights of power and dominion over the powers of Satan. He didn't separate the two. He didn't have a secular spiritual divide in his mind. It was all spiritual to him. And it is all spiritual. It is all spiritual. The fact that this room is clean is a spiritual matter. The fact that someone's in there taking care of the babies right now, that is a spiritual matter. The fact that someone is taking care of the children on the other end, that is a spiritual matter. It's not like, oh, we get the kids out of the way so we can have the glory of God. No, it's all the glory of God. Amen? Amen? I find it beyond fascinating that Jesus started the church with workers, not scholars. That's not to denigrate scholars or the contemplative life at all, but creating a sociological category out of the working class is not only insulting, but it's robbed us of the great genius in ordinary people. Plus, I think it created a false binary. You know, the ordinary and practical responsibilities of the first human is extraordinary. Do you, do you ever think about that? God created his first people, and he sent them to work in the garden and to tend the animals. Adam was doing husbandry before he was a husband. <laughs> That's what John Purdy said. Even before Adam became a husband, he was a husbandman, not a creature with no responsibilities and no task like the other animals, <laughs> but one put on earth in a lovely garden to care for it. In the next chapter of Genesis, we hear the story of the fall. Adam and Eve, listen to this. this, this might convict some of you, so I just, just brace yourself. This might be a triggering moment for someone. <laughs> Adam and Eve were not content with caring for God's garden. They hankered for a managerial role. <laughs> And so the ideal was spoiled. Boy, that's good, huh? It's one thing to be interested in Jesus. Perhaps you even feel that you love him. 
I'm not minimizing that, by the way. Jesus showed, as I said in the beginning of the message, Jesus showed great love for those who follow him and listen to his teaching. He showed great love and deference to the crowd that followed him. But I propose to you that it's a wonderful day of revelation and cause for celebration when you discover that you, you need God. That, that's great. But there's another day that's fantastic. And that is when you discover that God needs you. That's another day of celebration. And, and dare I say a deliverance from much that ails the human race is to discover that God, in His wisdom, has decided that He needs me to do His work. And He needs me to build the kingdom of God. And He's given me something to do. And I think that's incredibly, powerfully, an incredible, powerful source of significance for you and for me. Although, uh, I couldn't be more opposed to um, uh, George Bernard Shaw's politics or his attitude toward religion, his affiliation, and some of the causes that he worked for. But he was a great thinker and an amazing writer. And I'm going to close with his statement before Sherry comes and gives you further direction. This is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little cloud of elements and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to make you happy. I'm of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it what I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I have got a hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible or for handing it on to future generations. I'm going to have us just bow our heads for a minute and examine our heart. The world is just clamoring for our time and our resources and our talents is clamoring for our affection and it's mostly clamoring for us to serve the purposes of the world and so today I'm going to call us to be reminded that when we serve one another we are in fact doing exactly what the greatest servant of all modeled for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us as we examine our hearts and our, and our priorities and help us to find out what we have reserved to serve your church in our time and our talent. Make us stewards of the gifts and talents that you gave us so that we together can make a difference in our community. We can make a difference in the lives of one another. In your name, amen.